Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. This has been done poorly in a lot of cases. I remember in the late 70s and 80s, there was a lot of marriage enrichment going on. Some of it under the guise of Christianity. It was very deep into getting to know yourself, getting in touch with your own feelings, better communication. Nothing wrong with better communication, but sometimes that communication was just communicating what you felt. Now, did it help some marriages? Sure it did. It helped some marriages. But was it the way that the church ought to go about enriching marriages? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us for the conclusion of our series on marriage enrichment, Pastor David Peterson, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. We're going to talk about a marriage seminar held at a congregation, but before that, make the case that a congregation ought to entertain the possibility of doing this? Congregations need to do this because our people are in desperate need for relationship skills that can actually prevent divorce, and the church has real wisdom to offer for it. And there's really no risk involved to do something like this, even if it doesn't lower the divorce rate or help people avoid divorce, it's still going to do some good. And we just need to recognize that we're living in a crisis situation. People are growing up without role models, without mentors, without examples even in the media that they consume for how to be a husband and a wife. And theology is meaningless if it's abstract. It has to be applied. So we need to apply our theology of marriage to help people live in married lives. How does a congregation prepare to do something like this? I would say the first thing, whoever's going to lead this, ideally, I would think the pastor, but should read that book, Endgame, which I talked about in the first of this series by J.P. DeGantz, because he really makes the case of why this works and why the church should be doing it and the kinds of things. So that's the first thing. The second thing I suggest is to read this book by Eli Finkel called The All or Nothing Marriage. He's not a Christian. It's not written from a Christian perspective. But that book I have found to have the best explanation of what relationship skills are really needed, what we should really expect from marriage, and how to work through it. And I talked about that book quite a bit on our earlier series on marriage with you. And then finally, I would say, uh, and both of those books can be read pretty quickly, to read, if they haven't already, by Gary Chapman, The Five Love Languages. It's probably the best practical metaphor for thinking about marriage and how to operate within marriage. It's also become, it's a cultural phenomenon at this point. It's old and people use it. I mean, the, 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 the concept is widespread and useful. So, so read those things and then develop a plan for how to actually offer this directly to couples that are about to be married. 
I mean, you could do it in any kind of way you want, of course, but I think the easiest way to do it is to have a marriage, what I'm calling a marriage seminar. If you say retreat, then, you know, people are going to expect walks in the woods and meals and different stuff. If you can pull that off, great. But you can do a seminar on a single Saturday morning or a Sunday afternoon, and I think you could do it in two and a half to three hours. If you had nine o'clock on Saturday morning, get together, have matins, right? A short half hour worship service, and then a little break at 945. You talk for one hour, and then you have 20 minutes for like practical exercises. I'm going to get into the details here in a second. Another break, and then you come back and you have a kind of summary, and you're done at noon. And what you've done is you've not only given them theology and theory about how this works. You've forced them to think about these things deeply for a while, and you've forced them ideally to to look each other in the eye and talk to one another. And that's all hugely valuable. So it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be difficult. You don't have to have a PhD in this stuff. You don't have to have a counseling background. You don't have to read 100 books. You could just be a Christian who believes that God instituted marriage that people should work at it. And if they do, they will be blessed and it will be rewarding. How do you convince people to attend? Because I can imagine one of the biggest objections would be that if I attend, I'm somehow implying that my marriage needs work or that my marriage is in trouble. Right. We do want people to come whose marriages are in trouble or whose marriages need work. But also we just need to overcome this objection that that's somehow an unusual thing. We should instead try to develop a culture and a recognition that all marriages require ongoing work. They all need work. And this requires attention and effort. So, I mean, we just have to sort of overcome that. And that Endgame book in particular really makes the arguments for this. And the all or nothing marriage also helps us recognize that marriages are in crisis and there is danger. And, you know, in terms of to speak at a kind of human practical level, right, this is destroying our congregations. I mean, it's destroying our schools because the children are from divorced families and it's, you know, they can't be here every weekend and all that kind of stuff. And they come back from certain weekends stressed out and distracted. They're hard to catechize. They themselves grow up. I mean, it's just on and on it goes. The future of the church needs to be based in the family because the family is the foundational estate. I just pulled this on the youth group on Sunday. It was teaching about the three estates. So the three estates, right, that God institutes for us to live within or the three hierarchies are the family, the church, and the the government. And so I'm teaching the children about this, the high schools. And I say, well, which of those three do you think is the most important? And of course they said, church, because we're in the church and they that's the right answer, right? Jesus is always the answer. Of course, that's wrong. The most important estate, the foundational estate is the family. The church is derived from the family, as is the government. So there is a hierarchy within the hierarchies. And if we don't support the families, the church itself will be destroyed, even as society is. So we do need to embrace some recognition that marriage deserves attention. It requires attention. I think also it's helpful if those, the pastor in particular, but also kind of patriarchal, matriarchal couples within the congregation can demonstrate some vulnerability and speak openly about the reality that their marriage hasn't always been roses and they haven't always 
Remember that guy that was uh, that pastor that was talking about his smoking hot wife he thank, he, at the at the NASCAR race? Do you remember that kind of viral prayer? Yeah. That's idiotic. And it was idiotic and we all laughed at it and we should have, but it was it was also idiotic because besides being irreverent, it gave the false impression that, you know, if you were really as good as this guy was, you'd have this marriage where you would find your wife to be smoking hot and attractive and interesting and have no need, you know, it was a lie. Because she was, I don't know what her wife looks like, but the reality is beauty doesn't come, first of all, from the exterior. It actually comes from character. But also, the reality is is that all of us look at our wives in our fallen flesh, sometimes without appreciation. And there are seasons and times when that's particularly dark, that there are cycles in a sense, or seasons in marriage where it's not super happy right now. Right now we're focused on the kids because, you know, this kid's going through that and that's is happening. So this kind of exaggerated, idiotic, romantic idea is not helpful. We need to be honest. We need to get away from this idea of soulmates and, and all these sorts of destructive ideas. So I think that is an obstacle that people maybe are ashamed or they don't want to someone to think that their marriage isn't perfect because maybe they're not Christians. But we just have to try to tear that down because, again, marriage deserves attention and it requires attention and it's it's ongoing work. That all being said, my limited experience with this is you will not have trouble getting people to come. Not everybody's going to come. Not everybody comes to anything we have. But I think people are actually very, very hungry for this. And the younger they are, the hungrier they are for this. They are almost desperate for somebody to actually finally give them advice and to give them wisdom and to lead them and to help them because they're lacking it, right? Teachers and coaches don't do that anymore. Parents don't do that anymore. Everybody's afraid that you might come off judgmental and legalistic. So I don't want to tell my daughter-in-law that she ought to do the dishes right after dinner because it'll be easier to do them then than if she waits until the next morning. That's good advice, it's true. But if I tell her that, then she might think I'm judging and she might not like me. And so I deprive her of that practical wisdom that could actually be useful to her if I could give it to her in a way that was loving and kind. Uh, and I think we've just reached a point where that kind of advice just isn't being given. And I mean, that's, that's not the kind of advice we're given in this marriage seminar. Of course, what we're giving is in some ways gentler, but also more important. So we just need to do it and stop apologizing for it. Does this also serve in some way as at least a stepping stone for those couples that really do need pastoral care, personal pastoral care, to, yeah, absolutely. to, to come for it? Yeah. And maybe, you know, maybe this can lead to confession absolution. Maybe this can lead to some deeper conversations. That DeGant's book, that Endgame book, is just full of stories where exactly that happened, where people were... I mean, you know, who knows? Those those kinds of books are always full of stories, I know. But he, he has these anecdotes where here's this couple that was actually filing for divorce and decided to go as one last-ditch effort to a marriage seminar that this guy put on that was very much like what I'm describing. And it changed them. And their marriage was saved. It does work for couples in crisis. It can work. I mean, if they're Christians and if they come sincerely, it really can make a difference because it can shift their focus. It can realign them with God's word. It can, you know, help remind them again of who they are in Christ and what he's made them for and what they're to be to one another. Nobody gets married 
really thinking that I'm ever going to get divorced. So everybody kind of wants this. I even think that actually going to marriage counseling, going to a marriage counselor, not just the pastor, but I think that there's a great benefit in it, even if the counseling itself is worthless, because there's a kind of ceremony involved. And if you go there sincerely and intently, like, look, we're going to go and we're going to work on this thing, just that alone is valuable because it's recognizing the need for work and the desire to fix it and to want to do it. If only one of those people wants to do that, of course, it's not going to work. But if Christians come, they can get better. One of the reasons I'm saying we need to be honest and talk about the fact that marriage isn't always happy and that there's cycles is because when people are deeply in this unhappy cycle, what, what I want to tell them is it won't, it's not going to be like this forever. It will get better. You know, you'll go through dark periods, but it's not always dark, right? Endure and it'll pay off. There's better days coming. The kids will grow up. The kids will get better. You'll calm down. He'll get a new job. And then something else bad will happen. There is just this reality. And if we don't, if people don't know that, then they get into this kind of the dark times, the difficult times, the kids, you know, they're not getting any sleep or whatever's going on. And they might think this is never going to end. And that's going to lead to, dis it's not true, and it's going to lead potentially to despair, even if it doesn't destroy their marriage, and it might, but even if it doesn't, they're going to be less happy than they could be, and they're going to be less hopeful than they should be. So we got to push past this. And if you're in a crisis, it can get better. It is possible to learn these things. It is possible to live in grace. And we're not at liberty to talk about lots of these things, but I bet every pastor amongst us has experienced this. Marriages that he knows now that suffered incredible trauma and even unfaithfulness and even violence sometimes, that 10 years later, this is maybe the one of the strongest couples in the congregation, and that God's grace is real. It changes people. It changes hearts. It is possible to learn to grow. So the crisis is real. Don't ignore it, but don't think that it's a death blow either. Even extramarital affairs, they're hard to overcome. It's going to take some work, and there's going to be some crying, but it totally is possible. If Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead, he absolutely can, and he wants to save your marriage. A couple other questions before we get into the structure. Some people may have had previous experience with marriage seminars. I'm thinking of the kinds that were really popular in the late 70s and early 80s that were more about getting in touch with your feelings. And of course, it was a different time, but it was because now everybody emotes all the time. But it was more about getting in touch with your feelings. It was more about creating intimacy, things like that. And they might have a bad taste in their mouth from a previous experience. So there's been an awfully lot of good work that's been done in the psychology world on the reality of what is happiness and what makes for happiness. And I think that the benefit of this has, it's recognized that, so in the 80s in particular, this was the rise of self-actualization. And I think the kinds of things that you're talking about, what was going on, this idea was get in touch with yourself, right? Find your true self. And then you need to be able to express yourself without judgment and fear and, and those kinds of things. That's uh, actually harmful behavior most of the time, and it's, it's idealistic and in a way that's really destructive because it's not an ideal that can be obtained. So 
I think that what's going on now in the marriage counseling world, and I'm, I'm no expert in this, so this is only anecdotal, but it's much more data-driven and based. So there's been a lots of work that's been very helpful. For instance, that Eli Finkel book was largely done by interviewing people that did get divorced and trying to find out why they got divorced from their own perspective. And so having that kind of data, what actually destroyed the marriage, it wasn't a lack of self-actualization. You know, most of the time it was a breakdown in communication and a lack of feeling appreciated. Uh, so I don't feel appreciated by him. So I need to go somewhere where people make me feel good about myself. It wasn't self-actualization. It was looking outside. And, and what did I need from him to actually feel appreciated? I didn't really need that much. I just needed him to give me a hug or I just needed him to look me in the eye. So that kind of data that didn't exist before, and there's lots of it, has been really useful and I think has been put to good use so that the kind of advice that's being given is much better and corresponds, because it's better, I assume, it corresponds with a biblical worldview. And that is to recognize also, because that, that data really shows too, that if you want to be happy, I know happy is a shallow word, but if you want to be happy, you need to stay married. You can stop being married, but you can't really stop being divorced. It's a harsh reality. I don't mean to say at all that there's no happiness for Christians that God can provide. He does. I, I've known couples that have been amazingly blessed after terrible situations. But at the same time, I mean, those couples are still dealing with child support issues, with weddings, with funerals, with ongoing realities and the consequences of the divorce. It doesn't just go away. They have to kind of learn to live with it. The real way to find happiness, contentment in this life is actually in service to others, in commitment to others. So, I mean, there has been some bad advice given over the years, but I don't think as much of it's going on now. And of course, I would just say to go in fully Lutheran, go in, you know, fully doctrinally trained and recognizing what the Bible says and just ask the question again and again, does this correspond with what Holy Scripture teaches? Maybe Holy Scripture doesn't teach this exact thing word for word, but does this fit with the way that Ephesians 5 describes holy marriage? Does this fit with what God says in the sixth commandment? So let's judge this and say, does this correspond with the Bible? And then also, I think it's fair to say, does this correspond with reason and with experience? So if the pastor is up there talking about the headship of the man, and he's talking in a way that sounds tyrannical and abusive and creepy, then you should recognize that. And you should at least find out what he really means. Is that because, right? Because that doesn't correspond with love her as Christ loves the church. Or if he's talking in a way that, you know, whatever. So go in with discernment, listen carefully judge by scripture, and then also trust to some degree your own kind of reason and experience, and don't be a dupe. But again, I don't think there's much risk, because if you come to a marriage seminar, the actual content that's put forth isn't that good, or it isn't that helpful, you're still engaging in a ceremony to serve your marriage and to work on your marriage and to commit to your marriage. And it's going to at least make you think about your marriage and hopefully talk about your marriage 
and talk about your marriage to the one you're married to. And if you do that, you will be blessed. That will be good for you. So maybe you can't believe everything that's said, but what you're doing is valuable and valid. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. We're concluding our series with him on marriage enrichment on the other side. How does a pastor prepare for this kind of seminar through preaching and teaching without making it into an infomercial? Several issues, etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org 2023 nominations. Memoria Press award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and save $5 on your next purchase by using the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the new Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, the new Concordia Commentary on John 7-2-12-50. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're concluding our series on marriage enrichment with Pastor David Peterson, Pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Departmental Editor of Godestine's The Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, how does a pastor go about preparing for a seminar like this in the weeks in advance through preaching and teaching without turning that effort into an infomercial? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, I think we just have to, again, be true to ourselves. Let's not make up. I would avoid doing things like trying to make it clever, coming up with a clever name for it, or a graphic or that sort of thing. I think just keep it, in fact, I mean, maybe instead of calling it a marriage seminar, you know, maybe you call it a Bible study on marriage or, you know, a Bible study on improving marriages or helping marriages or enriching marriages. So, you know, let's not exaggerate the language. Let's not make it gimmicky or cute. And, you know, let's not make promises about this that we can't keep. And certainly, of course, let's not make it in any way puerile. I mean, let's not talk about improving people's sex lives or that sort of nonsense, but let's just look at it. I mean, in fact, you could easily frame this, legitimately frame this in terms of talking about vocation within marriage, because that's ultimately what we're doing. But I mean, you're going to almost, 
you could undersell it. I mean, you could bore people to death if you really used kind of theological language. But I mean, you could talk, really, what you're really going to be talking about is the Eighth Commandment an awful lot. But if you have a seminar on the Eighth Commandment, that's probably going the other way from making it into a commercial. So, But I think your, your warning is wise, that, that we should be careful, that we don't oversell it, that we don't cheapen it, and we don't make false promises that we can't keep. How would you structure this, and why would you start with a worship service? Because everything is uh, sanctified by the Word of God in prayer, and I think that it's legitimate to recognize part of what we're going to be promoting is for couples to actually spend quality time together. That is one of the kind of basis of it. And worshiping together is quality time as opposed to, in the literature at least, as opposed to sitting together on the couch watching television. So the act of worship, first of all, just puts the whole thing into perspective. We're going to submit to the Word of God. We're going to hear the Word of God. We're going to be guided by the Word of God. We're going to be empowered by the Word of God for holy marriage. And we're going to do what God says, and we're going to listen to what God says, and we're going to live in His grace and forgiveness as God says. It establishes kind of that, but it also that you are actually worshiping together, that you are in communion with one another. And then, you know, it's absolutely legitimate and necessary to call down God's blessing upon this endeavor. And again, this is done through the Word of God in prayer. So I don't think worship is essential to this. It is. It's not fluff. How would you envision the actual teaching that goes on here? I think there's there's really three things that I think you want to say, at least at the first one, that they're foundational. And that is you need to talk about marriage as the foundational divine institution or estate and the source of the other two, as we already talked about just briefly earlier, right? You need to establish that marriage is a divine institution. It is not a matter of convenience that is just historically helpful or a matter of society being ordered or just the way that we do it as a business arrangement, right? This is actually a divine institution, you know, and you can go to Genesis 2 for that, but that's what we've got to do. We've got to make sure that they recognize or we want them to recognize what marriage is, and then to recognize that they've been called by God to marriage, and that this is the holiest and most important thing that they do, that it's service to God and service to neighbor. So that's the core teaching of what marriage is, and then what men and women are. And then the next sort of step in that, the divine institution, and then the next thing really is that marriage is primarily companionship in the form of actually talking. And I talked about that at some length in the earlier series on marriage, that mainly the way we live is in our minds, and mainly the way we live in marriage is by talking and by listening. It's not primarily physical companionship or physical pleasure, or even primarily providing physical help to one another, either by food or protection. It's primarily about enjoying God's creation together alongside someone else so you're not alone, and that's in talking. And that's important because the main way that marriage is actually violated, it can be, of course, but it's not mainly sins against the sixth commandment. It's mainly sins against the eighth commandment. And we'll get to that a little more deeply. So you want to set up the divine institution and then what marriage is, how we live together in our minds by talking. And then the kind of final 
foundational thing is to talk about the marriage bed itself as also a divine institution that's for the sake of intimacy, not pleasure, and how that can be restored, true intimacy and service in the marriage bed, hopefully with procreation, but through forgiveness and sacrifice, that we can actually give ourselves to one another, that we can be an aid to one another for fighting temptation and for goodness. And we live in a world gone mad with its thinking about sexual intercourse. People think sexual intercourse is a right. In fact, they think deviancy is a right. And that to not engage in any bestial behavior, I might imagine, is somehow being oppressive if I'm told not to do it. And that's insane. I mean, that's total insanity to define a human being as simply a sexual creature outside of his own control is to just make us worse than animals, actually, because animals don't act like that. So so to, to, to get to what it really is and to recognize the goodness of it, to try to deal with the fact lightly, that there's probably some body, I mean, in a large group, there's going to be some body image issues, there's going to be some intimacy issues, there's going to be some shame, there's certainly going to be pornography use going on, there's probably some fornication that has happened in the past, there's probably been inappropriate things going on in the marriage bed, there's a lot of sexual dysfunction because of confusion that's basically because we've tried to use sex as a form of satisfying our own urges for our own pleasure rather than a gift of giving for one another and for the creation of children. So that's about what you got to say, what I just did, that whole thing. But it doesn't take that long. But you do need to, I think, that needs to be established also and recognize that a lot of tension comes from that. I don't know how long you talk about each of those things, but I've given you lots of material between the two series that would set it up. And then I think the final thing is, because what we're going for here is to lead them to kind of this practical exercise. And then after you've talked about that stuff and some of that stuff, and you've got Bible passages that you should be using to support this, then I think you want to give them something, a very kind of practical understanding and advice that they can actually put to use immediately. And that this five love languages is really, I think, the place to start if you haven't done that before with this particular group. It's probably well known by almost all of our listeners, but it's just this big metaphor that the idea is the way that we feel loved can vary from the way that people are trying to express love. And we'll get into that more in a little bit. If you don't want to use that one, there certainly are other possibilities. There's other books, there's other kinds of practical things, but I want all of that to lead up to, so that should take hopefully about an hour, try to keep it to that because you'll, you know, they'll get too bored and squirrely, but then you got to do this thing where in some fashion or another, ideally, I think you need to make the couple, you need to stop the lecture and the couples turn and face each other and talk to each other, not to anybody else in the room for about 20 minutes. And there's all sorts of possibilities of what you could do there. If you do the five love languages, the first time, the best thing to probably do is one of these inventories. So they try to kind of figure out what their so-called love language is, and then think about how they're acting in that way. But if you use a different book that could be helpful, or you know, you could make up your own thing if they want to talk about 
what their values are, or if they want to, if you want to risk it, which would be okay. I mean, you could have them try to say diagnose and think about a recent argument or difficulty or disagreement that they've had, but in some fashion, get them to actually look at each other and talk to one another in this environment immediately after they've heard the theology and in a place where it's safe because they're going to behave well because you're there and other people are there. And there's real benefit in that. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. We're concluding our series with him on marriage enrichment. We'll get to the practical aspects next. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. Bequests aren't subject to federal tax or capital gains taxes. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the word of the Lord endures forever. Since 1973, pro-life advocates have been gathering annually in Washington, D.C. to march for unborn life. And since the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year, this movement has taken on new direction and new focus. To learn more, pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, titled Life After Roe, and learn more about what the pro-life movement is now doing to stand up for life. Visit cph.org witness or witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Luther Academy. This is the Dr. Bill Weidrick in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January, the Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2 through 1250. On Jesus' words, I came that may, they may have life and have it abundantly. Not only does a life in abundance characterize the fullness of life enjoyed by the faithful individual, but life in abundance also expresses the communal or ecclesial form of life that is given by and in the shepherd. Talking, of course, about the church. Find out more about this second volume of John's commentary from Dr. Bill Weinrich at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order it there, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. We're concluding our series on marriage enrichment. Pastor David Peterson 
is our guest. David, get into some of those practical aspects that a pastor and a congregation need for one of these marriage seminars. Well, the Chapman book, right, to just sort of go through this idea. And so that where people get caught up with the love language thing, I think, even Chapman himself, in fairness, he forgets it's a metaphor. There's no such thing as a love language. It's just a way of conceiving of the world, of thinking about it. And the thesis is this. If you grew up in a family where your mother said, I love you every day, and you knew that was legitimate and genuine, then you feel loved when somebody says that to you. And so that's then how you try to tell other people, right? You try to express it with words. You just say, I love you. But if you grew up in a family that wasn't particularly expressive with words that way, but rather gave hugs all the time, you might feel like if somebody says, I love you, but doesn't hug you, that words are cheap and they don't really mean it. So their attempt to express love could fail like a translation error. That's the idea. And so Chapman says there's all these different ways that people express love. And if you don't recognize it, you might feel unloved, you'll grow apart, you'll get divorced. So you have to learn to not only hear love in the way it's being expressed, but more importantly, you need to learn how to talk your wife's language. So if she needs hugs, but you're not physically expressive, you have to sort of overcome that and recognize what she needs and hug her. Or if you're of German ancestry and you don't like to say, I love you, but she's French and that's what she wants, you just learn to say, I love you because she needs to hear it, even if it feels a little bit insincere to you. So that practical exercise would be one of these things where you just kind of go through this to try to figure out what you're most prone to, the ways that you do this, and so that you would learn to just be better at it and to do it in a variety of ways so that you make sure the other person. See, and it's really, you think about that, that's really just about talking. I mean, even if it's hugging and giving gifts and this other stuff, it's about communicating and about being present and attentive to the other person's needs. So that's a good one. There's this other kind of famous book in these circles, in Christian circles by Emerson Agarix called Love and Respect, The Love She Most Desires, The Respect He Desperately Needs. And he, I think he, you know, he kind of, again, exaggerates it in some ways, but he just says, look, what men need is to feel respected. And when they feel re respected, then they'll behave well and they'll be loving to their wives. And what wives need to feel loved. And when they feel loved, then they'll be respectful to their husbands. Both of these guys tell lots of stories, lots of antidotes, describe this or, or demonstrate it. But it kind of boils down again, they're useful. The books are useful and the books have exercises and the books will help you think about this stuff. And they're easy, easy reads, you know, written at about a sixth grade level. They're not difficult and they're fast. But what they'll do is they'll help you kind of think about how couples talk and treat one another. So if you like that and it appeals to you and it makes sense, you can use that book as a way to help your people there talk to one another and think about it. And so when I'm saying it all comes down, and then finally, you could just make up your own thing on the Eighth Commandment. And what I mean by this is what's happening so often in marriage, and both Chapman and Eggeritz talk about this, so does Eli Finkel, so does everybody that writes anything about marriage. Almost without exception, the problem is, is that I come home from work and I'm tired of being nice to people all day and paying attention to them and the like, and I just want to veg out for a while. And I walk in the door and my wife wants to talk to me. I'm kind of rude to her. I just sort of take her for granted because I just don't feel like working anymore at being nice to people and paying attention. So she sees that and she's hurt by it. And understandably so, because I have 
behaved badly. I've treated her poorly, not as well as I treat the people I work with. This isn't a far-stretched, weird scenario. This kind of thing happens to us every day. But then it gets worse. So bad. I committed something wrong. I did something wrong. But then how she responds is really where it becomes all of a sudden dangerous because she sees me be rude, be inattentive, be whatever, surly and, and the like. And then she interprets it. And she puts motives in my heart and she assigns ideas to me. And then she says, he doesn't think I'm pretty. He isn't interested in me. He doesn't love me. And then it goes the next step. That's because he is a jerk, because he's mean, because he's selfish. And that is the seed, I think, that mostly, if left to grow, that destroys marriage most of the time. And what, what has happened? He behaves badly, and then she breaks the Eighth Commandment. She assigns motives to him. She puts the worst construction on it. She doesn't go to him and talk to him, right? And I mean, you can just, you, you know, when you start thinking in this way, I think you just see that almost it feels like every kind of marital problem kind of devolves down to this. So you can do things in these practical exercises. You can either create case studies, you know, just like make up a story like that one. You wouldn't probably have to think very hard. You could go to your own life and then, you know, have the couples like analyze it. What went wrong? How did they break the eighth commandment or how did they not show respect or show love or, or whatever? I think you do need to provide like case studies though, at least some to get them talking and thinking about it. In the most ideal world, and as, as maybe as time goes on or later in the session or at another session later, the most ideal thing is when they recognize how they themselves have done that sort of thing and could analyze it and then could talk about it with one another and then commit to this. I'd say the final thing is on that practical stuff, I think we just need to say over and over and over and over again, we need to reinforce the reality that God instituted holy marriage, that he hates divorce, that men are to be the heads of the houses and their wives are to be subordinate to them, and that we're working together for the mission of the family and of the church. And we, we cannot be ashamed of any of those statements, and we need to be fully committed to them because they are expressive of what God has revealed in his word for us. Finally, with about a minute here, how will the effort on the part of the pastor and the congregation to strengthen the marriages within that congregation Bring into sharper focus what St. Paul tells us about marriage being an intentionally created picture, a divine portrait of Christ in his church. Well, Christ puts up with us, right? I mean, he lives with us. He loves us. He adores us. His love covers the multitude of our sins, and he desires this intimacy with us and for us, and he does not give up. So, it is an astounding thing to see how two sinful human beings can live together and actually find peace and contentment, at least at times in this life. And then to recognize that this is just a shadow of the joy and of the goodness and the love that Christ showers upon us. Because in that relationship, only one of us is sinful and the other one is perfectly patient and absolutely does cover all of our sins. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, thanks for the series. Thank you, Todd. It was my pleasure. 
Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss Making the Sign of the Cross with Dr. John Bombaro. We'll talk with Dr. Stephen Parks about proof texting early church fathers and Roman Catholicism. And we'll respond to your email, talkback at issuesetc.org, and the Issues Etc. comment line 618-223-8382. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. You're invited to a special life service Sunday afternoon at 3 on January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Pastor Michael Salamink, Executive Director of Lutherans for Life, will be the guest preacher. What does Jesus have to do with life issues? Find out at a life service Sunday afternoon at 3, January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Learn more at sidadvocatesforlife.com.